tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is February the 2nd, 2010. The American writer J.D. Salinger has died at the age of 91. Salinger's reputation uh, is that of a recluse. His work hasn't been published since 1971. There are rumors, rumors everywhere that he has um, stored some work. Uh, we'll find out soon enough. Uh, Here's an icon for some folks. The work that was published um, is in the library of almost everyone I know. His novel, Catcher in the Rye, is the book that gave us adolescent angst, modern adolescent angst, with all its uh, wild humor, pathos, and morbidly self-conscious grief, shame, uh, a lament for the world in which we live, this world full of phonies. <laughs> Alden Caulfield is not Huck Finn. He is not David Copperfield. He is not James Dean. All the other anguished adolescent males, uh, you can line them all up, and each one has a different color, a different shade. Uh, actually, Holden Caulfield mm, may not be Salinger, or perhaps he is. At any rate, he's a gifted, neurotic adolescent. Um, Salinger's stories circle around uh, a family called the Glass family. The eldest is Seymour Glass, who committed suicide. Uh, we discover him to be a uh, uh, a Tragedy. He was suffering from post-traumatic stress after World War II. The uh, Second World War permeates all these stories. Uh, this family—they were all precocious children. Some of the um, some of the stuff is autobiographical, but uh, I, I leave that to the scholars. We will we will be getting endless um, uh, essays about how much of this was based on. Uh, Salinger's life. Think of think of the family as uh, the quiz kids. If you remember the 1940s and 50s, you remember a group of children who were uh, on the radio. They were called the quiz kids. They knew everything. <laughs> anyway, in Salinger's stories, they have hypersensitive antennae for everything that's going on around them. Uh, his themes are about Eastern wisdom, about Buddha nature. Um, I think he sees himself as a sort of bodhisattva teacher. 
Yes, teacher, teach thyself, heal thyself. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Um, the children in Salinger's stories are the catalysts. They are the honest folk. The shattered men he writes about uh, can relate to these children because the children, uh, they're not, uh, they don't have the mask, the shallow, callow mask of the grown-ups. Callow, I love the word callow. I looked it up the other day and it means literally bereft of feathers. (laughs) I guess that means, yes, pre-adolescent. the little kids, the six-year-olds, the ten-year-olds, these are the uh, wise folks with the Buddha nature in Salinger's stories. Uh, oh, all the grown-ups seem to be phonies. Once in a while you run into a Salinger grown-up who is kind and wise, usually somebody's mother. <laughs> I remember back in the 50s, I can remember in college... Uh, Trying to think, yes, of some old friend or lover, the one who called me a phony phony. I like that. I put it in my notebook, yes. She's a phony phony, he said, that veneer girl. Uh, we were all running around saying that we needed to be real, R-E-A-L, be real. We said, I think that meant be like me. Tell it like it is, and then came the 60s and the reality sandwich that gives us gives us this bellyache here in the belly of the beast. We had great appetite in those days, but our digestion was problematic. It seems that insights, that is, psychological, sociological insights, don't necessarily translate into changes in behavior. I didn't understand that. Uh, I want to read to you one of the stories, a little bit of one of the stories in the collection called Nine Stories. Um, I'm sure everyone can find that in the used bookstore. It's all about, this story is all about two women who were college roommates. It's called Uncle Wiggly in Connecticut. I remember we used Salinger's short stories for acting, for scene study, uh, for auditions, because usually they build to some kind of emotional catharsis. Um, in this story, in Uncle Wiggly in Connecticut, two women get drunk together and share their disillusions. Um, Eloise is married, and she has a daughter called Ramona. She is a jaded sort uh, she tries to be tough, and she's reminiscing in this story about a man that she loved once. Uh, he died in World War II in a strange accident. Uh, her husband, Lou, is apparently a disappointment to her, yes. Her friend, Marianne, her career girlfriend, has driven out to suburbia. And uh, the first half of the story... Uh, they get good and drunk. And they talk about whether or not she should spend the night, Mary Jane, whether they should just give up and uh, pass out. But at some point, they pour another drink. And Eloise says, I mean, you didn't really know, Walt, said Eloise at a quarter of five, lying on her back on the floor, a drink balanced upright on her small-breasted chest. 
He was the only boy I ever knew that could make me laugh. I mean, really laugh. She looked over at Mary Jane. You remember that night our last year when that crazy Louise Hermanson busted in the room wearing that black brassiere she bought in Chicago? Mary Jane giggled. She was lying on her stomach on the couch, her chin on the armrest facing Eloise. Her drink was on the floor within reach. Well, Eloise said he could make me laugh that way. He could do it when he talked to me. He could do it over the phone. He could even do it in a letter. And the best thing about it was that he didn't even try to be funny. He just was funny. She turned her head slightly toward Mary Jane. Hey, how about throwing me a cigarette? I can't reach him, Mary Jane said. Nuts to you, Eloise looked up at the ceiling again. Once, she said, I fell down. I used to wait for him at the bus stop right outside the PX, and he showed up late once just as the bus was pulling out. We started to run for it, and I fell and twisted my ankle, and he said, Poor Uncle Wiggily. He meant my ankle. Poor old Uncle Wiggily, he called it. God, he was nice. Doesn't Lou have a sense of humor, Mary Jane said? What? Doesn't Lou have a sense of humor? Oh, God, who knows? I guess so. He laughs at cartoons and stuff. Eloise raised her head, lifted her drink from her chest, and drank from it. Well, Mary Jane said, that isn't everything. I mean, that isn't everything. What isn't? Oh, you know, laughing and stuff. Mm, who says it isn't, Eloise said. Listen, if you're not going to be a nun or something, you might as well laugh. Mary Jane giggled. You're terrible, she said. Oh, God, he was nice. Eloise said he was either funny or sweet. Not that damn little boy sweet, either. It was a special kind of sweet. You know what he did once? Uh-huh, Mary Jane said. We were on the train going from Trenton to New York. It was just right after he was drafted. It was cold in the car, and I had my court coat sort of over us. I remember... I had Joyce Morrow's cardigan on underneath. Do you remember that darling blue cardigan she had? Mary Jane nodded. Well, he sort of had his hand on my stomach, you know. Anyway, all of a sudden, he said my stomach was so beautiful. He wished some officer would come up and order him to stick his other hand through the window. He said he wanted to do what was fair. Then he took his hand away and told the conductor to throw his shoulders back. He told him if there was one thing he couldn't stand, it was a man who didn't look proud of his uniform. The conductor just told him to go back to sleep. Eloise reflected a moment, then said, It wasn't always what he said, but... How he said it, you know. Have you ever told Lou about him? I mean, at all, said Mary Jane. Oh, said Eloise, I started to once, but the first thing he asked me was what his rank was. What was his rank? Ha, 
said Eloise. No, I mean, I just meant. Eloise laughed suddenly from her diaphragm. You know what he said once? He said he felt he was advancing in the army, but in a different direction from everybody else. He said that when he'd get his first promotion, instead of getting stripes, he'd have his sleeves taken away from him. And he said when he'd get to be a general, he'd be stark naked. All he'd be wearing would be a little infantry button in his navel. Eloise looked over at Mary Jane, who was not laughing. No, you think that's funny? Yes, said Mary Jane, only why don't you tell Lou about him sometime, though? Why? Because he's too damned unintelligent, that's why, Eloise said. Besides, listen to me, courier girl. If you ever get married again, don't tell your husband anything, you hear me? Why, said Mary Jane. Because I say so, that's why, said Eloise. They want to think you spent your whole life vomiting every time a boy came near you. I'm not kidding either. Oh, you can tell them stuff. But never honestly, I mean never honestly. If you tell him you once knew a handsome boy, you got to say in the same breath he was too handsome. And if you tell him you knew a witty boy, you got to tell him he was kind of a smart aleck, though, or a wise guy. If you don't, they hit you over the head with the poor boy every time they get a chance. Eloise paused to drink from her glass and to think. Oh, she said, they'll listen very maturely and all that. They'll even look intelligent as hell. But don't let it fool you, believe me. You'll go through hell if you ever give them any credit for intelligence. Take my word. Mary Jane, looking depressed, raised her chin from the armrest of the couch. She thought over Eloise's advice. You can't call Lou not intelligent, she said aloud. Who can't? I, I mean, isn't he intelligent? Mary Jane said innocently. Oh, said Eloise, what's the use of talking? Let's drop it. I'll just depress you. Shut me up. <coughs> well, what'd you marry him for then, Mary Jane said. Oh, God, I don't know. He told me he loved Jane Austen. He told me her books meant a great deal to him. That's exactly what he said. I found out after we were married that he hadn't even read one of her books. You know who his favorite author is? Mary Jane shook her head. L. Manning Vines. Ever hear of him? Uh-uh. Well, neither did I. Neither did anybody else. He wrote a book about four men that starved to death in Alaska. Lou doesn't remember the name of it, but it's the most beautifully written book he's ever read. Christ! He isn't even honest enough to come right out and say he liked it because it was about four guys that starved to death in an igloo or something. He has to say it was beautifully written. You're too critical, Mary Jane said. I mean, you're too critical. Um, maybe it was a good book. 
Take my word for it, it couldn't have been, Eloise said. She thought for a moment and then added, I mean, at least you have a job. I mean, at least you... But listen, though, said Mary Jane, do you think you'll ever tell him Walt was killed even? I mean, he wouldn't be jealous, would he, if he knew Walt was, you know, killed and everything? Oh, lover, you... Poor, innocent little career girl, said Eloise. He'd be worse. He'd be a ghoul. Listen, all he knows is that I went around with somebody named Walt. Some wisecracking G.I. The last thing I'd do would be to tell him he was killed. But the last, last thing. And if I did, which I wouldn't. But if I did... I tell him he was killed in action. Mary Jane pushed her chin further forward over the edge of her forearm. L, she said, Oh, why won't you tell me how he was killed? I swear I won't tell anybody. Honestly. Please? No. Please, honestly, I won't tell anybody. Eloise finished her drink, replaced the empty glass upright on her chest. <laughs> you tell Akim Tamaroff, she said. <laughs> Footnote here. In other parts of the story, Eloise talks about Akim Tamaroff, a movie actor who's always saying, you make big joke, ah, English. Anyway... <laughs> She said, you'd tell Akim Tamaroff. No, I wouldn't, said Eloise. I mean, I wouldn't tell anybody. Mm, said Eloise. It, well, his regiment was resting someplace. It was, it was between battles or something. And this friend of his said that wrote to me, he said, Walt and some other boy were putting this little Japanese stove in a package. Some colonel wanted to send it home. Or they were taking it out of the package to rewrap it. I don't know exactly. Anyway. It was all full of gasoline and junk, and it exploded in their faces. The other boy just lost an eye. Eloise began to cry. She put her hand around the empty glass on her chest to steady it. Mary Jane slid off the couch and on her knees took three steps over to Eloise and began to stroke her forehead. Don't cry, El, don't cry. Who's crying, Eloise said. I know, but don't. I mean, I mean, it isn't worth it or anything. The front door opened. That's Ramona back, Eloise said nasally. Do me a favor, go out in the kitchen. And tell Hoosets to give her her dinner early, will you? <laughs> All right, if you promise not to cry, though. I promise. Go on, I don't feel like going out to that damn kitchen right this minute. Uh, <laughs> the next section I will skip over because it's terribly politically incorrect. Uh, Eloise is very condescending and rude to the black woman who's her housekeeper and cook. <laughs> she 
And the housekeeper at some point asks her if her boyfriend can stay overnight. And Eloise says she's not running a hotel. She's not a nice girl. Um, anyway, I need to skip down to the end here a little bit into the story. Uh, oh, it was her husband. Right. I'm afraid he can't spend the night here. Yes. I'm not running a hotel, right? Uh-huh. Okay. She goes upstairs to her little daughter's room, Ramona's room. Ramona is a child whose eyesight is very bad. She's having trouble with her glasses. She can't see anything. And she has all kinds of imaginary friends that drive her mother crazy. And the friends, of course, represent some of the child's demons and fears. Uh, Eloise snapped on the light in Ramona's room. She held on to the switch as if for support. She stood still for a moment, looking at Ramona. Then she let go of the light switch and went quickly over to the bed. Ramona, wake up! Wake up! Ramona was sleeping far over on one side of the bed, her right buttock off the edge. Her glasses were on a little Donald Duck night table, folded neatly and laid stems down. Ramona! The child awoke with a sharp intake of breath. Her eyes opened wide, but she narrowed them almost at once. Mommy? Ramona, I thought you told me Jimmy Jimarino was run over and killed. What? You heard me, Eloise said. Why are you sleeping way over here? Because, said Ramona. Because why, Ramona? I don't feel like playing this game because I don't want to hurt Mickey. Who? Mickey, said Ramona, rubbing her nose. Mickey Micorano. Eloise raised her voice to a shriek. You get in the center of that bed. Go on. Ramona, extremely frightened, just looked up at Eloise. All right, Eloise grabbed Ramona's ankles and half-lifted and half-pulled her over to the middle of the bed. Ramona neither struggled nor cried. She let herself be moved without actually submitting to it. Now go to sleep, her mother said, breathing heavily. Close your eyes, you heard me. Close them, Ramona closed her eyes. Eloise went over to the light switch and flicked it off. She stood a long time in the doorway... Then suddenly she rushed in the dark over to the night table, banging her knee against the foot of the bed, too full of purpose to feel pain. She picked up Ramona's glasses, and holding them in both hands, she pressed them against her cheek. Tears rolled down her face, wetting the lenses. Poor Uncle Wiggily, she said over and over again. Finally, she put the glasses back on the night table. Lenses down. She stooped over, losing her balance, and began to tuck in the blankets of Ramona's bed. Ramona was wide awake. She was crying and had been crying. Eloise kissed her wetly on the mouth and wiped the hair out of her eyes and then left the room. She went downstairs, staggering now very badly. She woke up Mary Jane, who was lying on the sofa. Was that... who? Oh, said Mary Jane, sitting bolt upright on the couch. Mary Jane, listen. Listen, please, Eloise said, sobbing. 
You remember our freshman year. Remember I had, I had that brown and yellow dress I bought in Boise. And Miriam Ball told me nobody wore those kinds of dresses in New York. And I cried all night. Eloise shook Mary Jane's arm. I was a nice girl, she pleaded. Wasn't I? That's the end of Uncle Wiggily in Connecticut, one of the short stories that you will find in the collection of nine stories by the late great J.D. Salinger, a writer who may have more to tell us. I look forward to <laughs> finding out what was hidden away. Uh, his promise to give us uh, the history of the Glass family. There is a book called Seymour, an Introduction which is worth your time. And there is another book called uh, Franny, and, Franny and Zoe. And then there's Race High the Roof Beam Carpenters that I read years ago. That's awfully funny. Uh, all those books simply circle around and around the Glass family. Uh, the first story in the book is called A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. And I taped a little bit of that to read on the Thursday morning show at 8.20. It's a wonderful story about Seymour's um, um, suicide. He takes a little girl called Sybil out on the beach, and they go swimming, and they look under the water for banana fish. And he tells Sybil that those are the fish that swim into a hole, and they eat so many bananas they can't get out again. And, well, that finishes them off. And then Sybil pretends she saw one. <laughs> The other stories I recommend, let's see, there's nine of them, for Ismay with Love and Squalor is probably the one that deals most directly with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, I've known people who said they use that in their work with uh, veterans, people who had been through the war. Uh, Pretty Mouth and Green My Eyes is one that I have used. It's a story I've used in acting uh, workshops. It's a man and a woman together and uh, they're in bed and they get a phone call and it's the woman's husband. He's upset because his wife, the woman in the bed, has left the party with someone and he can't find her. And he talks and talks and talks to the man. The story goes on and on and on and he tells all their marital horrors. Finally hangs up uh, and the woman is uh, fairly non-committal. Then the phone rings again, and the husband has called back, and he he says his wife has just barged in again, you know. Anyway, he, he makes up a lie, pretending that uh, everything's all right. It's a nice, nice uh, curtain raiser. Uh, then there's uh, a wonderful play, let's see, down at the dinghy. There's the one where <laughs> Salinger was, of course, a Jew and a child. A child is called a kite, K-I-T-E. And, of course, the person uh, meant to say kike, which is used to be or still is, I don't know, a derogatory word for a Jew. And his mother is upset. Uh, the last story, Teddy, has always bothered me. It's about a little boy who is, uh, maybe not Siddhartha, but um, an incarnated Buddha, steady. 
I have never been sure whether this story makes sense. Uh, I guess what Teddy is trying to tell everyone is that life and death are very much the same thing. <laughs> the last thing that happens, of course, is that he goes to his death at age 10. That's Teddy. Nine stories by J.D. Salinger. Check it out, along with all of Salinger's other work. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Goes in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of Amy Allison, host and producer of The Morning Show, with great news. The Morning Show's got a new co-host, the fantastic Brian Edwards Teacup. Oh, thanks, Amy. Now, Philip Moldry is moving to Sunday mornings. You can check him out every week from 9 to 11 a.m. And on weekdays, wake up with KPFA for interviews, debates, culture, and breaking news from around the Bay and around the world. That's the brand new Morning Show's weekdays from 7 to 9 a.m. with me, Amy Allison, and now Brian Edwards Teacup. We'll see you in the morning. Pede logo o seu amor.